Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. everybody and welcome back to truth and justice hope everyone had a great holiday break or whatever holiday you do or do not celebrate i know mike and i enjoyed a nice week of getting ourselves caught up on some of our paperwork including all of the questions and comments that you all send in after episode 507 which was the door-to-door sightings yeah it was a nice break but it's good to be back in the studio and bob i've got a ton of questions for you this week all right well let's go ahead and get started then Okay, first of all, let's get an update on the Egg House Open Records request. All right, actually had a pretty quick turnaround time on this. Uh, I, I was pretty, I was pretty happy with the Open Records request. I mean, I, I, I was able to look up all the Arkansas statute numbers and you know, and, and, and cited them in my in my request. And then I actually called the West Memphis Police Department to see if they maybe had electronic copies. They said no. They directed me on where to mail this to, and I told them that I was looking for something from May fifth, nineteen ninety three. And uh, they had me mail it in, and I, I shipped it off to them with a self-addressed stamped envelope, just like they told me to. And uh, the, <laughs> they 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 sent this back to me on Friday. Uh, they sent me back my request, and at the bottom it says, we no longer have files under 2004. Thanks. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, not what you were expecting, was it? No, no. I was Especially because of the fact that I actually I called them and told them what I was looking for. And they told me to send this request, so I did that. And then they obviously knew that this. According to this, they no longer have any files under 2004. Uh, which yeah, I actually went through some of the record retention laws for Arkansas for something like this. Yeah, they they don't need to keep you know for a, a criminal mischief complaint like this. They don't necessarily need to keep it that long. Uh, so it was kind of a bummer. Uh, next step is for me to try to maybe uh, track down the owner of the house and see if we can get a little more information. But that sure would have been nice to have that police report. But uh, that is your follow up. It was quick turnaround time, and I got a note that says they don't have it. Yeah, that is a bummer. But let's get to our next question. Kim writes, "I'm stuck on the bicycles. How closely to the crime scene could the boys have ridden their bikes? Were there bike tracks?" I don't believe that we have any reports of there being bike tracks in the trails north of the pipe bridge. So uh, the boys, there's a couple of different theories out there. Uh, one is that the boys rode their bikes to the bayou, 
left their bikes on the south side and walked across the pipe bridge. And then the, and the bikes never went over to the north side. Uh, another theory is that they walked across the pipe bridge with their bikes and then left them on the other side. Uh, and then some people believe that they got on their bikes and went riding on the other side. But that they did, they only went, you know, I don't know, maybe 50 feet total between the pipe bridge and where the crime scene was. I mean, it's a very tight area. But again, no, no one reported seeing any bike tracks in the dirt over there near the crime scene. They did see some in the Robin Hood area south of the pipe bridge. There were some, uh, I think I think it was Officer Moore off the top of my head, but some of the officers and parents said they thought they saw fresh bike tracks uh, south of the pipe, but not north of the pipe. My personal theory is that, uh, and, and, and it is nothing more than that. It's just, it's, this is just a, a hypothesis, I guess, of what I think happened. I think maybe that they probably left the bikes south of the of the pipe ridge because you got to remember it's a steep embankment that and you're familiar with it mike from being there yeah so you, you could take the bikes down that hill to the pipe and lay them right there in the weeds in the side of it and no one would be able to see those bikes from up on the road because it's it's probably what maybe a 10 foot drop down to the pipe yeah it's about 10 feet enough to conceal the bikes right um it's just in and like we you know like we discussed before the pipe bridge isn't the easiest thing in the world to navigate uh, so it's, it's certainly possible. They took the bikes over there with them. I, I kind of think they probably didn't. And a lot of that has to do with post-offense behavior of the offender. I, I definitely don't think that the bikes, that they rode the bikes back to where they were discovered, uh, because that would just be just, just absolute stupidity for someone to leave the, the concealment of the crime scene and then come back out into the open uh, depending on time of either daylight or later when people are searching all over there, in any case, in clear view of the apartments there at Mayfair, to come back out of the cover of the woods to take the bikes back to the bayou to put them in there. I think they either put them in the water they're right there with the boys uh, or they just leave them. Uh, so I, I think that one way or another, those bikes were sitting by the pipe bridge, either on the north or south side. My personal opinion is probably on the south side, but I don't personally believe there's any way the bikes were with the boys because that would just be. I mean, as crazy as this case is anyway, to be absolute insanity to come back out of the cover, to go back to the bayou to dispose of the bikes. And also along those notes, and we're going to get into all this behavior analysis stuff uh, before too long here. Uh, but I, th I think that also tells us something about the offender. I believe that tells us one of two things. And I do have my opinion, which it is, but I'll, I'll leave that for later. Uh, but the bikes being put into the bayou there tells me that either the offender had to go back across that pipe to get back to wherever he or they were going, uh, and they came across the bikes and threw them in, or it was premeditated, and they saw the bikes there and threw them in ahead of time, knowing what they were going to do. Either way, I think it's a good indication that the offender or offenders came from the south, from the neighborhood side, and not from uh, the service road side, because if they came from that way, how would they even know the bikes were there? So anyway, that's just a little two cents on the bikes. Well, if the offender knew the kids might have bikes, then they could maybe go looking for them after they killed them. Yeah, it's possible, but it, it just it's a it's a huge risk. I mean, even especially if you're talking about somebody that's not real criminally sophisticated. I mean, they're scared. It's quite an event to to go through an experience, killing the boys, concealing the bodies, and everything they went through. And then to, to have the the forethought to go, well, let's go look and see where their bikes. If they came from the the service road side, they're just assuming that the kids would have had bikes somewhere and going looking for them. And again, coming out into the wide open like that, it just 
to me, the bikes being thrown in the bayou were definitely part of permanent concealment. It was to not give any, not to give the police or anybody else an indication of where the boys might be. Uh, and I think it was also out of necessity. I think that or, uh, that the the offender offenders again uh, were walking past the bikes and therefore had to get rid of them sure. on, their, on their way back to you know, retreating from the crime scene. Okay, and Penny writes to us, I'm confused why it's a big deal that Stevie wouldn't be with Michael during those sightings mentioned at the end of the last episode. Well, it's because we have some pretty big gaps in the timeline, and we're gonna, we, we just decided right before recording here that we're going to get into that in a little more depth on Sunday. Uh, but ultimately, it's because of this. It was the, the no narrative has always been that a lot of people just believe the three were together, but people that were a little more knowledgeable in the case know that uh, it was Stevie and Michael together who later met up with Christopher. Uh, it's never been part of the narrative that Stevie broke off from the pack at all. And and it has to do a lot with the Jamie Clark Ballard sighting back down uh, by Stevie's house. And as we get further into the case, it'll, it'll become apparent that uh, it really could be more significant than you may realize if Stevie did, in fact, leave the group and maybe return back home. Because that's something that we, up till now... Uh, don't have any statements, no evidence indicating that that happened. So that's all it is. It's not like some massive bombshell or anything. It's just that we we may have a flaw in the known timeline if Stevie left Michael or left Michael and Christopher. If he was on his own, where did he go? Did he go home? Uh, what does that do with the Jamie Clark Ballard sighting and a lot of other things that we're going to get to later? Okay, we've got two things here for Pablo. First, he's got a new question, and secondly, we want to follow up from a question he had last week. Remember, Bobby had a question about if the police had ever talked to the people who lived on the house at the end of Macaulay by the pipe bridge. Right, and we did track that down. We had actually been over it and didn't realize. So the address of that house is 1100. Here's another thing. Uh, I keep calling it WeCat. The street is actually, because somebody pointed out to me, it's named after a person. It's W-E-Cat. Uh, so I, I, do, I do know that, that it's pronounced W-E-Cat. Uh, I started calling it WeCat when some of the locals we talked to referred to it as WeCat. So it must just be lazy language, I guess, from people that live around the neighborhood. But uh, for the record, I probably will slip many times and call it WeCat. But the street is actually named after a person, and it's W-E-Cat Street. Anyway, the address that is the house that is the end of West Macaulay, it's actually on the corner of West Macaulay and W-E-Cat Street, is 1100 W-E-Cat. And it's owned by a Virginia column, I think, uh, C-O-L-L-O-M, I think. Uh, it's, it's a little hard to read on here. But uh, she was actually one of the questionnaires that we, we read as far as, wasn't in the sightings episode, it was in the door-to-door leads episode. And uh, she has a daughter, Charity, sister, Suzanne Ellison. She says that she lives there six months. Her daughter attends East High School, ninth grade. And she was the one where, in the answer to number seven on the questionnaire, said, "There's a 40-year-old white male, five foot nine, 190 pounds, brown gray beard, 12 inches long, shabby, unkempt, old bicycle, blue with basket on front. Last seen going towards Robin Hood a month ago. Is believed to live there. So these were the people that had told police that they believed that this 40-year-old man lives in the Robin Hood woods. Now." We have a problem here, too. So not realizing at the time, at least I didn't when I was reading this note, this is the note where I said the the person that took the photo of the page and the door-to-door notes cut off the bottom. So the answer to question number eight says, Wednesday night, White Corsica had one grown-up 
and then the bottom is cut off. We don't know what else it says after that. But so this is the person that lives right there, right next to the crime scene, and they're saying something about a white Corsica, which is a car, and we lost the rest of it. So um, if anybody listening has access to it, it was page 77 of the door-to-door notes. Uh, if anybody has, I know a few people actually have scans, clearer versions of these. Mm-hmm. Um, so if any of you listeners happen to have that, if you can get it to us, either through our email or you know message us through Facebook, I'd be really interested to see the rest of that note. Um, otherwise, when we make our trip down to the evidence room, we will get a hold of it. But um, Pablo, thanks for reminding us. And yeah, so this was the, the house right there, the, the home, uh, besides the apartments, that was actually the house closest to the crime scene. This is the house that from their backyard, if you walked all the way to the end of their backyard, the bodies were maybe 100 feet from there is where they were found. Sure. And then Pablo's question for this week is, the sightings of Michael Moore without Stevie also don't mention that Christopher was with him either. Or was this the time he was accounted for? Well, those sightings of Michael without Stevie, and there's two of them where there's no time given. And so we have to kind of piece that together with other sightings, try to figure out when and where that, well, we know where it was, but when it was, um, which we're going to work on here in in this week's episode. But the one where we know that was timestamped said between 4 and 4.30 that Michael was seen without Stevie or Christopher. Now, that does fit with Christopher not being there, because remember, Christopher was was found by his his dad when he got home, riding a skateboard in the street at 520. That's when he got punished. They went inside, was told to clean the carport, uh, and then dad left again. Mom stayed home. And then so it was somewhere between 530 and 630 when Christopher took off and then met up with Stevie and Michael. So it's, it's not really that significant that Christopher's not there. We kind of expected that based on the known timeline. But Stevie not being with Michael is well would be if it, if it if it all adds up that way it's definitely new information for us. Okay, listener Angela has a thought. She assumes the boys are running away from some problem at home. But what if Stevie met someone in the hours we don't know about and got himself into a bad situation and that's what they were running away from? There were some other listener theories about this, and I remember one was saying something about maybe a truck driver. Uh, picking up the boys and you know they were trying to get away from home like running off with a truck driver there were a couple different ideas floating around what do you think bob i think it's possible i mean i I don't know i i definitely agree they were running away from something Uh, and we know christopher told his friend bobby posey that he was running away from home specifically uh, because he was pissed off because his dad whipped him um but as far as stevie we we just don't know they could have there's any number of reasons that they could have been running away. They could have come across another set of kids, some bullies. It could have been another adult, the truck driver, a parent. We don't know. Um, but I, I, I would agree. I guess all I can really say without just doing a bunch of speculating is that I agree that I think they were definitely, they, they weren't just leisurely going into the woods. They were going there with a sense of purpose. They were trying to get away from something and going there to hide out. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Amy writes to us, Jamie Clark Ballard said she saw Ryan Clark at school the next day after the boys were found, May 6th, and talked to him. Pam Hobbs and Melissa Byers say in their testimonies that they both went to Weaver the following day to see if the boys showed up. Ryan could have gone along with his mom. Could Jamie Clark Ballard have spoken with Ryan when he came to the school with his mother? No. The The problem with that is that, that Ryan didn't go to Weaver. Uh, and actually, I had I made a mistake. I thought that he went to East Junior High. Remember, he's 13 years old. He's not in elementary school. So East Junior High is just right you know, across the yard from Weaver Elementary, and it's very close up there to the crime scene. Uh, but as it turns out, Chris didn't even go to that school. He went to actually a private Christian school with Jamie Clark Ballard. So, no, there's there's no way that the parents stopping by at Weaver Elementary had anything to do with uh, Jamie Clark saying that she talked to Ryan the next day because different school completely, different neighborhood even. So while we're on the topic of Jamie Clark Ballard, what are your thoughts on the credibility of her statement? Uh, so it's been a big topic of conversation, not just on our fan pages after this episode, but for, for years uh, online. And, and I think Jamie Clark Ballard's statement there's a couple possibilities here. I, I can tell you that, and and again, this week we'll get into it in more detail. My personal opinion, her statement is inaccurate. I don't think, well, we know, I think you know, pretty conclusively or close to it, that she didn't see Ryan at school the next day. So Because as far as we know, Ryan didn't go to school. But the 6.30 timeline also, I th- when we look at the different sightings, we just have a whole cluster of sightings of the boys way up in the north end of the neighborhood, all right around between 6 and 6.30. Uh, and so her being certain that she saw them at 6.30, uh, i just be honest, in my opinion, I think that that's incorrect, uh, that that's inaccurate. So with that being said, I think that leaves us with a couple of different options. Either Jamie Ballard is intentionally making the whole thing up and lying. Or the story Jamie Clark Ballard is telling is her truth, so to speak, meaning it's the way she remembers the incident. Uh, and, and then if that's the case, we got to... So we can't do much with if she just made it up, right? If that's... I mean, I don't know anything about her character as a person, why she might do that. I think it's 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 kind of a stretch that she says this and her mother backs her up and her sister backs her up, that they all back up this story. Uh, that's a lot of people to get together to uh, to just make a, a lie up out of whole cloth. But that's that's a possibility. But but let's focus in for a minute on the other possibility, which is she did see something and has some details wrong. So you remember way back, and well, it wasn't way back. I guess it was just season three. We were we really got into the way the mind remembers. Um, and we talked about something called affective memories, which is when there's an emotion tied to a memory that it kind of locks it into that long-term memory center of your brain. Uh, so you remember it for a long time. So there, there are parts of, if we break down what Jamie says, what, what caught my attention is that she says, okay, she saw the boys, they were writing out, you know, she tells Chris to go home, he smarts off to her, 
She sees uh, Terry and Amanda in the driveway. Terry tells them to go home. Uh, and, and and they just keep on going after that. And and what stuck in my mind is that she said for years, her and her mom and her sister would discuss this and say, you know, oh my God, it was so crazy. We saw the boys the night they were killed. We saw them right, right. We talked to them. I yelled at Chris right then. So that if now, again, we're talking about if that she's trying to remember things the best she can. That is an, is a strong emotion to be tied with that memory. And it's a part of the memory that is easier to hold on to because it gets repeated. So anytime there's discussion that comes up about the murder of those boys, the quote, the West Memphis three, you know, we remember we saw them that day. We saw them that night. That I think has, has a, as a good potential to be accurate based on the fact that it's, it's tied into an emotion. Now, we look at the details, however. 6.30 p.m. We're always looking for anchors. How do you know it was 6.30? Well, they knew it was 6.30 because it was right when she was going to church. That's when her, you know, the, the sponsors, I think they called them from the youth group, pulled up, and they got in the car. It was always at 6.30. That's when they saw the boys. But the problem is they weren't ever required to recall the exact time until 14, 15 years later. Okay, so it, it just comes down to, yeah, we saw them that night. I'm, I'm not writing an affidavit. I'm not interviewing with the police. None of that. I just, we're remembering you and me. We just say, Mike, if you and I saw, you know, something happen, and then, you know, if, if we saw a friend, you know, they stopped into the studio and said hi to us, and then they, like, got killed in a car accident. You know, we remember, like, oh, my God, I remember that day we saw them that day. That would stick. Uh, but we wouldn't necessarily talk about we saw them at exactly 255, right. right? So a possibility, again, if there's truth to this and Jamie's trying to remember her truth uh, or she's trying to remember as best she can, you know, it's possible that youth group, I don't know, let's, let's say maybe the youth group in May of 1993 started at 530. And in, in 94 or later that summer, they switched it to 630. Or in 95, whatever. And then for the next five years, she went to youth group at 6.30. But back then, it was at 5.30 or 5 or whatever time it could be. And so when they tried to draw back, it was like, yes, I remember we were. I was leaving for church. And the, the sponsors had just come to pick us up. And their memory maybe says, that, well, that always happened at 6.30. And so it had to be 6.30. Um, but I, I think there's a, there's a distinct and easy way. It would be easy for someone to mix up that part of a memory. And I, and I know I keep qualifying this because I, I just don't want people just going off like I'm saying this is what happened. I'm just saying that this is, if, if I'm doing a statement analysis, based on the fact that I believe she's trying to tell the truth, it's not unreasonable that she would mix the time up for reasons like that. But it is unreasonable to think that she would mix up that the night the boys were killed, she saw them. Sure. And and the same thing with Ryan at school. Like she would remember that's an emotional time when she talks to Ryan and says, you know, you know, oh my God, I I saw him that night. And Ryan says, why didn't you tell him to go home? And she says, I did. Like if that that conversation happened, th that's that's an emotional thing, and they're going to remember that. But over fifteen years, you know, that conversation could have happened next week, as opposed to that day, you know, or the the next day. And I don't think that, that it's unreasonable to blur those lines over a 15-year period. I remember, you know, when Ryan came back to school that we had this conversation. Well, like I said, that could have been the following week before that happened. Uh, but in her mind, her mind's memory over years, 
that that became the next day, even though it really it clearly wasn't the next day. But there's a lot of indicators to me and doing the statement analysis that she's that she's telling the truth. For that's one of them right there. Bringing other people into her statement now, parents. I guess if they're if they're if they're colluding together to try to get some uh, you know some Hollywood money or something, which is a theory people have out there. I personally don't don't buy that, um, but it's possible. Uh, maybe you get your parents, you know, your mom and your sister on board to split up the money. But when she brings Ryan into it, uh, that's that's another problem. You know, because I, you, you don't call the victim's brother and say, hey, I'm going to lie and say that I saw your brother down here so I can get some money. You go along with it. Anybody that's making that statement has to assume that the interviewer is going to corroborate what you told them, meaning you assume they're going to go call Ryan and ask if this happened. And we don't know. I have no idea. If I, 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 I'm, I'm quite certain Ryan doesn't do public interviews. He hasn't. Um, I'm sure people have tried, though. So there, a lot of people may have spoken with him, and we just don't know about it. But the fact that she involves Ryan, involves her mother, involves her sister, all of that is, are, are indicators that it likely happened. So at the end of the day, uh, my opinion of Jamie Clark Ballard's statement, I, I don't think she's making the whole thing up. I don't. I think that she's trying to tell the truth as best as she remembers it. I definitely think she has details wrong. I don't think that that sighting happened at 6.30. I know she didn't talk to Ryan the next day at school. And, and I even question, you know, the number of boys on bikes or, or whatever, you know, who was riding a bike as opposed to who was walking or who was running. You know, she was focused on Chris. She knew Chris. Uh, and, and for that to be happening, that fleeting moment as far, you know, the other boys could have been pushing bikes or who knows. But but that, that's my opinion. I think Jamie Clark Ballard is probably doing her best 15 years later to recount something that she did experience. She's got some details wrong, um, which then now uh, then makes that not a credible sighting, which is upsetting because uh, it's significant. It really is if we if we know where they're at. And again, I go back to the West Memphis Police Department's, in my opinion, absolute incompetence for not canvassing the south end of that neighborhood. Because I think we would have a lot more answers if they had. Along those lines, people are a little upset that you're calling them out for that, and they think it's a little uncalled for. They've said, why would they canvas down there when all the indications were at the north end of the neighborhood? Yeah, and I did see that, but I think it's a chicken and egg thing. All those sightings, other than you know Dana Moore saying, uh, I saw the boys going north on 14th Street. You know, they and then the bodies were found up there. So they they kind of, you can look again at our map, and I think we've talked about this before, but... Now, we put pins on our map or our sightings and we're trying to map the timeline and stuff. And it's like the entire northwest corner of the neighborhood is full of pins. Tons of sightings all over the place. And they're all between where the bodies were found and Chris Byers and Michael Moore's house. So they, they just kind of took an area and said, well, they went between here and there. And so what it tells you is the police were just looking to find someone that saw something in those final moments before they went into the woods. Right. So they, they know at six, we're going this way. And we know, you know, if the the last sighting that they 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 believed to be credible was Chris Wall uh, saying at 6:45 they're heading toward the woods. So like during this 45 minute period, what were they doing here? However, in my opinion, they should have seen the flaw in their logic right away because when they start canvassing, they're getting sightings of the boys up there at five o'clock, five thirty, five forty-five, six thirty, six o'clock. So obviously they were making the rounds all over the place, and for some reason they just never went southeast of the Byers and Moore house, which would be towards uh, where Stevie Branch lives, that whole part of the neighborhood. And so, like I said, it's chicken and the egg. Well, 
Why were they canvassed there? There were no sightings down there. Well, there were no sightings down there because they never canvassed down there. None of these people were calling the police and telling them, hey, I saw the boys that day. Uh, and, and a lot of people have criticized that, too. Well, well, if you had information, why wouldn't you call? Well, just right. seeing the boys ride by, you don't know that if, if that's significant. Some people might have called and said, you know, I, I saw them. Uh, but most of those 39 sightings came from the police knocking on the door, showing them three pictures, because not everybody in the neighborhood, remember, knew the boys. right? They just knew three boys from the neighborhood were killed. So they went door to door and showed them the pictures and said, did you see these three boys yesterday? And that's where they got them for, yes, I saw the, or I saw those two, or I saw these three, all three of them, or I saw this one. And they start to fill in the gaps. Well, they never went down to that neighborhood. They never knocked on any doors. Therefore, they never had any sightings. So, you know, saying that they didn't go there because there were no sightings is just, it's, in my opinion, I'm, I'm sorry to be harsh, but it's ridiculous because they wouldn't know that unless they went and knocked on the doors. That also goes back to one of the reasons people call Jamie Clark Ballard's statement into question is why'd she wait so long to come forward? Well, just like every single other person that gave a uh, a sighting statement to the police, she didn't know it was significant, if it's true, if she did see it. I mean, think about it. She goes outside and sees the three boys riding away. She sees one of the boys' stepfather standing outside hollering at him. They ride by. Then the boys go missing. They're found dead. The same stepfather, along with everybody else, is grieving for the kids. Why would someone expect or suspect that a parent of the victim wouldn't tell the police they saw the boy there? You know, that, that no one would expect that. They wouldn't think it's significant. You know, if the, the boys flew out of there and Terry Hobbs saw them and Jamie Clark Ballard and Deborah Moyer saw them, they would assume that they know the police are talking to Terry Hobbs, that he's given them that information. So I, I don't think it's ridiculous at all that she wouldn't come forward. And I, I really believe that if we spent some more time at the police had actually knocked on those doors, that they would have had more sightings down that area. Listener Rosie says, do we think the fourth boy could have been Doris Gately's grandson, Trey, mentioned in the episode? It may have been, but remember when they questioned Doris about it, she just said that that Michael was at their house playing with Trey. Mm -hmm. uh, she never said anything about him leaving, at least that we don't have information as far as the notes go, uh, that we don't have any information about him, Trey, leaving with Michael. As, as a matter of fact, and I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it said that Michael didn't say where he was going, where he was leaving, if I'm remembering the right one indicating that Michael left without Trey. So no, I, I don't think that it was likely Trey that was riding around with the three boys, you know, at 4.30 uh, at Barton and 14th. No, I don't. All right, and Laura writes, what are or were the policies for questioning children back then? Was it normal there for kids to play in other people's yards that were not their own or their friends? There were several references to the boys playing in so-and-so's yard. This seems odd to me, as I never played in other people's yards growing up. The first half of that, you know, what were the policies in interviewing kids? There's a big difference between hauling a kid in for interrogation and going door to door and saying, hey, Billy, did you see anything? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, policies, if you're actually interviewing a small child, is you got to have permission from the parents and then the parents could be present. You know, there's there's a, whole, just a whole lot that goes into that. But going door to door, uh, the police can stop and talk to, you know, anybody they want to, especially when they're just canvassing, trying to get information. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think twice about, you know, if I was, and we've been a part of, you know, at the fire department, search and rescues when kids have gone missing and things, and we just grab anybody we can find, and have you seen them? Have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? As far as the second half of the question, I mean, it sounds to me, I don't know the answer to that as far as 
is it normal for the boys to play in other people's yards? But I know in my neighborhood and back in the, you know, well, not early 90s, but in the 80s when, you know, when I was that age, we used to do that kind of thing all the time. And it just seems like that type of neighborhood where it, it just was normal. The kids were running around. And it's kind of like that now, too. When you drive through there now, there's just kids on bikes and, and on foot just everywhere playing in that neighborhood. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know the answer to that, but I don't think it was uncommon. When I was growing up, yeah. all the neighborhood kids would just randomly hang out in someone's backyard. Yeah, like, I, and I think it just depends on your neighborhood. Right. You know, yeah, and that like, was a nice, you know, if you live in, you know, New York City, that's going to be very different from, but this was just like very similar to the neighborhoods where like you and I grew up in, mm. you know, just small, you know, quiet residential neighborhoods. Right. Uh, where, yeah, the kids just run around and play. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Debbie's got three questions here, and they have to do with locations. Her first question is, it appears the only way to get from Robin Hood Hills to Turtle Hill is to cross the bayou at the Pipe Bridge. Is this accurate? Yes, that is accurate. Second question, what is the distance from where the boys were seen entering Robin Hood Woods to the crime scene and location of the bodies? Uh, well, there was a couple of places where they were seen entering the Robin Hood Woods. Most of them were right there around. And I almost said it because there's two different paths that go in and about the same area, which is where 14th Street dead ends into Goodwin. And if you remember, Mike, when we were out there with Shane, mm -hmm. that's where there was, there was like a little driveway that kind of popped out right there. Yeah. Uh, and the woods aren't there anymore. It's a big open field now. Right. Um, geez, I don't know. How far would you say from there? Uh, it's maybe a couple football fields. Probably 200 yards is what I would say. Yeah. yeah. But honestly, looking back, I mean, it could have been a little further than that. Yeah, it's 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 definitely seemed like a long walk. I mean, it was kind of cold and windy uh, and raining, if I remember correctly, yeah. when we were making that walk. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm I'm looking at the map right now. I I would say is the crow flies from the entrance, which again is down uh on Goodwin. I would say about 200 yards, about. Uh, but that would be an estimation. Uh, but it, it's a little ways because there's also another creek that about halfway between that point and where the pipe bridge is, there's another runoff stream, drainage stream that comes. Actually, it goes into the bayou, uh, but it comes from right there, right about where Proctor meets We Cat. Uh, and goes in. So th that's a spot where if you were walking, you couldn't continue all the way along the bayou to the pipe bridge. You would have to go back out around that back out into the houses or the street to, and then go back into the woods again in order to get down to the pipe bridge. So it would seem even longer. But I, I guess I I'm assuming what she's getting at is there's quite a bit of separation there. They're, they're not close. And the third one you just answered, which was, could you travel through Robin Hood Woods via trails to the pipe bridge across into Turtle Hill? Yeah, right. Like I just said, uh, no, you had to come back out to the road because of the other drainage ditch. 
This next one comes from Azul. In the police notes, I'm wondering, is there a specific reason why we don't consider the star next to Eddie Keene's name as being related to Jamie Clark Ballard? I understand there was a loose connection between Jamie and Patti Smith. Couldn't there be a loose connection to Eddie Keene, too? Yeah, I mean, I'm not writing off or or even assuming that Patti Smith is the person that that note is connected to. Uh, It was just that I I know there is a loose connection from Patti Smith to Jamie Clark Ballard. But again, the star is there next to Mrs. Keene. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I was just throwing ideas out there as far as what what that note could be attached. It could be attached to either one. Who knows? Right. Jamie Clark Ballard could have been walking down the street. We don't know. There there could be a loose connection to Ed Keene, too. We don't know yet. So uh, we're still searching searching all this out and, and trying to figure this thing out with that note and Jamie Clark Ballard. And ultimately, I'm hoping it's going to lead to me actually having a discussion with Jamie Ballard and some of these other people listed there to try to get this figured out. Okay, and Lisa writes, I'm curious as to why you feel this was not a planned murder. I can see that the killer or killers may have not planned every detail, but I feel the injuries were so severe that there was intent. Well, there was intent to do harm. I guess it depends on what you consider to be a a planned murder. I mean, yes, I believe, obviously, the offenders intended to do great bodily harm to these boys. Uh, whether it was to all three of them or if it was to one of them and the other two were witnesses and then and then intended to kill them to cover it up. I don't know. There's a lot of scenarios there, but uh, there's just too much there that doesn't fit with a what we would call a premeditated murder. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there was no plan to get rid of the, the bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was in, in the bindings, you know, they didn't bring rope with them. They didn't, you know, if, if you're planning to kill three people, you don't typically do it by, you know, bashing them over the head. I mean, unless you have some intimate knowledge uh, that that will kill somebody. I mean, obviously, you know you get hit hard enough over the head, but most people think you hit somebody over the head with something hard, you're going to knock them out, not kill them. You know, if you plan to kill somebody, uh, you, you bring a knife, you bring a rope, you choke them. You know, there's there's a lot of different things that, that could be done. You move them, even. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so there's, it's just, to, to me, everything indicates the fact that they're tied up with their own shoelaces. Uh, that the clothing was had to be stored stashed in the water, you know. If, so let's look at the clothing, for example. Uh, there's there's cl- a clear attempt at, at permanent concealment here. Um, if this was planned as far as premeditated, like I'm going to go in the woods and kill these boys, uh, and and I don't want people to find their clothing or whatever, you bring a backpack with you, you know. And if you strip them down and put all the clothing in the backpack, uh, you know, to get it all out of there or everything you want to remove in the crime scene, and then you take you burn it somewhere or throw it in a dumpster or something like that. Uh, but instead, this person, to me, had no choice, person or persons, had no choice but to exit that woods in front of other people. And broad, prob- probably when it's still daylight or close to it, this person knew that when they walked out of the woods, someone was likely to see them walking out of the woods, and therefore they couldn't have anything in their hands. Uh, and, and that was something that I don't think that they planned for. Uh, and also the fact that how could you possibly plan for the boys to be in those woods at that time? Uh, there's there's a lot of conflicting reports, and we'll get into all this later, but uh, this was not a place, uh, as far as we know, as far as I know, that the boys often played in. There's, there's reports that Chris Byers has been over there playing, but there's also reports from his brother who said that he wouldn't go over there, that, that Ryan tried to get him to go over there, he wouldn't go over there because he was scared. So if it was premeditated, I don't see how anybody could, you know, sit in those woods and lay in wait to kill those boys, because how would they possibly know that after Chris was supposed to be home, after Stevie was supposed to be home, even maybe not Michael, 
but the other two, after they were already supposed to be home, that they were going to ignore their curfew that day and go to a place where they never go to play before to walk in there. There's just no way somebody could know that. Okay, and Claire writes, whatever happened to Christopher's skateboard? Was it confirmed that he took it that night, like some of the sightings suggested? Was it ever found? The skateboard is a big mystery, just like a lot of things here. So Dana Moore says she saw Christopher riding his skateboard north on 14th Street, like from the direction of their house, leave the skateboard, and then get on the back of Stevie Branch's bike, and the three boys rode off going north. I have a few issues with Dana Moore's sighting there, but we'll get into all that later. Uh, but so she says the skateboard's laying there inside of the road. Talk to John Mark Byers, and he says, we never found the skateboard. I, th- I think, actually, don't quote me on that. I think, do you remember? I, th- I don't remember. I, I think that he said they never found it or they thought it was up there. Uh, but what I do know is that Ryan Clark, in one of his statements, either that or in trial testimony, very clearly said that he went and recovered the skateboard that was up on 14th Street where Dana Moore said she saw them get off. And he said there was a skateboard there, but when he looked at it, he had never seen it before. It was not Chris's skateboard. Um, so we don't even know if Chris owned a skateboard or if he took that skateboard from someone else or if that was the skateboard that he was on. So it's, you know, it's again, one of those things that might seem insignificant, but it could prove to be important. But we just don't know much about the skateboard other than Ryan Clark saying the skateboard that was found on the street was not Christopher's. All right, in our last question, Alyssa writes, since the episode was presented out of order, which sightings conflict with each other time-wise? Okay, so here's the deal. So Mike asked me this question when he was starting to put together his outline uh, and, and mentioned that you know I might want to get that information together. As you can see, this is already a long follow-up, and as I started to piece it together, what I realized is that question is an entire episode. Uh, and and so we've kind of rewound. I've I've spent the last day, and I've still got some more time here. Uh, I'm actually leaving. We're recording this uh, way before you guys are hearing it because I'm leaving tomorrow morning to go um, do an interview down in Texas tomorrow. Uh, so I'll be doing some more work on the plane, and when I get back. But so this Sunday's episode that's going to drop two days after this is going to answer that question in detail. We are going to take all of the information from last week uh, about the door to door notes and the sightings. We're going to put it into chronological order, and we're going to finally piece together an accurate chronological timeline from the time the boys got out of school until they disappeared that night. So that's what's coming on Sunday. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us over our two-week break. And we'll talk to you all next week. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Katie Ross of In Tandem Design for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. Thank you to Amanda Meyer, who designed and created our Friday follow-up logo. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Uh, we did see a nice little spike in the, the Patreon donations over the break. And also the iTunes review. So thank you all for everyone that's doing that. And hopefully you're sharing the podcast as many people as possible so we can keep growing the audience and getting more eyes on this case. We're definitely going to need it as we move on with these next few episodes as we're coming up in these next few weeks of getting into the actual real controversial part of this case. Uh, you can get in touch with us through email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. 
You can like our Facebook page. You can join the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. You can always leave us a voicemail with a question, a comment, or a tip to 269-224-2833. You can do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Or you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Blessing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Peter? No, that's right. No, that's right. Let's go. Let's go. Son of a. Son of a. Listen, I live here. Listen, I live here. If this takes if us this till takes nine o'clock to, to record this, you're the one. You're the one that. I, I, I didn't miss you at all. All right. All right. All right. Oh, jackass. What a bummer. <laughs> oh, you're doing that line again. Yeah, right back to where we left off. Okay, yeah, all right. Like, that never even happened. Right. Okay. Hey, you were copying me. The next words that were coming out of my mouth, you were going to repeat. Well, because I said, and... let's play repeater. <laughs> and then you sat I went there. on the attack. You sat there silently when in the middle of our recording our episode. You know? Because I knew that you were attacking me. Can we just move on? Yeah. All right. Whoa. Okay, let's get started. What are you doing? I thought you had some more to say. You've been looking at that report. I thought you were going to... I was looking away Whoa. from you because you get, Whoa. you get nervous when I make eye contact with you when you're reading off your paper. I don't know if you know this, but I always look the other direction because you get through it more smoothly. If I'm staring at you while you're reading... It's always so bad, yeah. Yeah, so that's all I was doing. All right, you asked the question. The four. I know it's been a bit. We need a break. We need to. We need a break there after the intro. What, what? We're already past. We already asked the first question. We did the intro. Took okay. a ten second. All right. All right. All right. Okay. This question's from Kim. Okay. This question's from Kim. We're going on six minutes of this stupid repeater game. I just want to get this done. We're going on six minutes of this stupid repeater game. I just want to get this done. Okay, seriously, I'm tapping out. Okay, seriously, I'm tapping out. I got a flight. I got a flight. We can't keep doing this all day.
fine. All right. Oh, let's go back to. Can we have a truce? Truce. Yes. Truce. Nobody goes up and down with what them. What are we doing? We you do went way up here. I was there first. You want me to come up here to you or you meet, wait for you down you here? meet me. It's a fist bump. It's not a up-down. I thought it was going to be an up-down. That hasn't been done since 1994. It was going to be the up-down bump. Are we going to bring it back? Yeah, up-down bump. Oh. You blew it up. You blew it up. I did not blow it up. You went... But I didn't... <laughs> Dude, it's... 4.30. I got a flight in the morning. Okay. Um, let's uh, shake the sillies out. All right. We're going to hit it hard.